Hey, welcome back to the Progress Podcast. We're so excited to bring you this episode. This is our first step outside of our usual business and innovation talk. We speak to Dave Richards. He's a world-class photographer who came over from Australia to New Zealand and has built an amazing life for himself. Working with international brands, international names, but staying very stealth while doing it. Dave's story is about hard work, self-awareness, and getting started. You're going to really value this episode. That's such an interesting look into something that, to be honest, we don't really know that much about. So sit back, journey with us, and enjoy the story. Thanks so much for joining us in the Progress Lounge. Yeah, pleasure to be here. We're really excited to tell your story. And it really fascinated me when Jack brought up your name. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just so excited to dive into your thoughts on creativity and what your story brings but yep. before we get into that your story is our first true look at how to build a life within a creative landscape we've okay. talked with entrepreneurs we've talked with business people and you have an incredibly unique journey building to the place you find yourself now mm-hmm. and we are so interested to travel that road that leads you here so from your eyes how did Dave Richards become a photographer working on the world stage and where did his journey begin? Oh, okay. Um, I think it came around probably through a lot of coincidences and just things lining up certain ways and probably how it started initially was through disorganisation. Um, <laughs> when I was about, <laughs> true story, telling the truth, uh, when I was about 14, I was at school and we had work experience um, just before we sort of broke up for the year and I'd left it to the last minute and hadn't organised anything. <laughs> and I rang a local newspaper um, and said, oh, I'd love to work, I'd love to be a journalist, which is at the time what I wanted to do. And I rang them up and said, oh, are there any vacancies? And they just laughed in the phone and were like, no. <laughs> like everyone did that, organised it six months ago. And then at the last minute they said, oh, we do have a photographer here though. If you wanted, you could go around with him. And I thought, oh, well, I can probably do that. I can't see why I can't get in there and see what it's like. Uh, and that was a two-week stint. I did that and within the, or the first day by about midday, I was like, this is what I'd like to do professionally. I absolutely love it. Um, and I stuck around for two weeks, uh, but then I think there was um, short. We were back at school for two weeks, then the year broke up, and we had eight weeks off mm. for annual holidays. And I asked them if I could continue to work there on the house to learn a few different things, and just left with a job on weekends at about the age of fourteen. So was really one-eyed about it. Two weeks and hooked, and at fourteen, spent the Christmas holidays. Yeah, about eight or eight or ten weeks, I think it was at the time. Yeah, yeah. Shucks. wow. That would have been yeah. such an interesting insight because had you owned a camera, had any thoughts on photography before this? I hadn't, but when we look back in our family, every disposable camera or camera we had, there's always stupid photos from me messing around with it, which probably cost my parents a small <laughs> fortune. But, yeah, so I was always doing that or messing around with video cameras and things, doing silly things or, or, or just being experimental. Yeah. I don't suppose you remember the, the first, I guess, job that you were doing in the in these two weeks. Do you remember what it was that you were out there photographing or is it sort of just? Oh, a lot of it was, um, it was almost like photojournalism where we'd be mm. meeting up with somebody, uh, one woman who, there was a story about her, um, her husband had died and she was in her 80s and the photographer was taking portraits of her and I was taking some as well. So it was just sort of getting to hear stories as well from people and reflecting that in your photos. And I, I guess too that working for newspapers, there was all that, 
where you have to show it as it is and not really change it too much, but you got to see how you could portray someone in a certain way and possibly alter the story unintentionally, mm. whereas you had to listen to them and make sure it reflected that. That's really interesting yeah. insight into photojournalism because, like you say, it's very much being representative of the c- scenario. It's mm. not an edited photo for show or big print magazine, etc. It's actually showing a raw scenario. Yeah, it's, it is, and it's something you keep learning. Like I remember um, in Christchurch once I had to photograph a woman for um, a cover of a magazine. This was early on when I was here, and she was stunning, but the story was about her being a battler. And she turned up with her hair and makeup done. I took this photo of her and I was like, wow, she looks incredible. And then they said, oh, can you photograph her again? Because the story's not from that angle. But I hadn't heard the story. Yeah, whereas I just think I show people to the best of their ability or, or the way they look the best. Interesting. So learning to match the narrative that mm. they're trying to tell mm. with the photography style. Yeah. That would have been such an interesting thing to learn in that Yeah, it, in was, that it was actually. Made me sort of realise, well, if I want to do that, I want to make things and people look the best they can look. It's such an um, interesting step up as well because obviously you're going from messing around with your Instax disposable cameras on your family holidays to, I'm assuming, an SLR yeah. film camera yep. in at 14. Mm-hmm. What was, expensive was it hobby. daunting? Yeah, I was going to say expensive hobby. Uh, not really. Um, I, th- I think back then because you also learned how to develop film and print your own photos. Now, I haven't been daunted by a lot. I, I don't know what it is, whether um, growing up in rural Australia, we had the we were that generation where we had the great luxury of getting bored. So we would get really good at things um, and just experiment and do things like that. So, Can you contextualise, whereabouts in Australia did you grow up? So ripe old age, 14, you found this passion. Whereabouts are you? And um, I suppose what comes next? Well, the um, newspaper was in Wyala, which is in South Australia, sort of South Central down the bottom. Um, and we'd always lived around that area. Um, you, and I've forgotten the question. Yeah, roughly how big a town? <laughs> That's totally <laughs> Oh, Wyala, probably I've never 20 to 30,000 people. Okay, yeah, so yeah, it's so reasonably sized. Yep. So um, what came next after this, this first experience? So you've gotten the taste, you've got a weekend job, doing some photography for the paper. What would you say is the the next step along the journey that came that, I guess, started the career? Or what came next? Well, with with that, I sort of continued to do it because, Mm. uh, what was I, about year 10 at school. So year 11 and 12, I ended up doing all the school photographs and things like that. So my school was like, hang on a minute, he's got a camera. He's probably cheaper than the other guy, so we'll use him (laughs) and and things like that. Cost cutting, Um, we love that. Yeah, yeah. And and it was working probably three days a week with the newspaper, so weekends, all all weeknights. and a lot of other times. Uh, so that, that was almost, in a way, a little bit like a full-time job at that age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did that and other things would pop up. Like I guess when you first start as a photographer, you end up getting asked to do weddings for families and things like that and friends. So things like that would happen where you'd learn that experience and engaging with people. Um, and yeah, I, when I look back, I think I was actually quite successful then. Like at that early age, like it was quite unusual. Um, but it was, it was also in that time when uh, technology was changing and, and things were starting to go toward digital in, or the, a few years later they were. Mm. But I probably didn't have the experience to do it as a business. Mm. So 
I did a bit of a sidestep there for a while where I'd worked for other companies um, and oddly always end up shooting for them or shooting campaigns and things like that. So, so these are agencies or big uh, businesses? Sort of more corporate. So what, what I thought is, um, I, don't, I don't know if it was looking back, I think this now, but I don't know if I was that calculating at the time because it sort of felt more like accidents and things would happen. And then I'd look back and go, wow, in that job I learned this skill that helped me start my own business eventually. But I worked for Coca-Cola for quite a few years. Um, they advertised a job that I think was part-time, um, probably about eight hours a week, which once again, probably young and overconfident, didn't put me off because I was like, no, I'll get in there and show them how good I am. I'll have a full-time <laughs> job in a week <laughs> or two. upgrade so easy. And it worked, yeah. it worked. Um, Amazing. But that was also a company that was easier to get in in a regional centre before moving to a city. Mm. Uh, so I did that and um, you learn merchandising, sales, marketing standards, things like that um, across all different areas. Um, and I probably, I think I worked in about seven towns. I had to shift seven, town, seven towns within under seven years, um, including Adelaide and a few regional centres like Alice Springs. That's pretty full like on. That. Wow. Yeah, it, so was, it was really good though. What age bracket would you say this the seven-year period oh, was? I don't probably 18 or something. Because after school I did a year yeah. as an exchange student, um, which usually you do while you're at school. But I was like, nah, I don't know what I'm going to do, figure that a gap year. Um, but it was really good fun because you yeah, you, you got different skills in different areas. Um, and at Coke, like I also got experience managing people, um, managing distribution for a while, working in that area, um, key account management. Uh, just real different areas. Like there were a couple of jobs that didn't have titles and I was like, I want to do that. There was one that was like basically business to business door knocking and I hated the aspect of that, hated it. So B2B I put, sales is a big yeah, no. So I put my hand up for it and everyone was really weirded out in the company. They're like, why are you doing that? And I was like, because I hate it. I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to approach people and it was good fun and that was what probably… What drove you to do that? Oh, just because I knew I sucked at that and it was an area that I needed skills in. Because I think that's something that not many people would do. That was a real sideways like, mm. or a downward step. Yeah, I yeah. mean, a lot of people struggle with, you know, interactions on that level. Not not many people like selling and, mm. and B2B, especially in that context, is hard. Yeah. The idea that you push yourself to doing it, knowing you hated it and weren't good at it, is very counterintuitive for a lot of people, I think. Mm. Um I definitely commend you for doing it, but I'm really curious, what was ticking in your head that drove you to that? Pro probably what it would have been. Um, in Coca-Cola, we had an incredible state manager, Joanne Podoliak, who I, I, I worked with quite closely, but she was always, she'd say things about how when she's in a role, she's looking 20% on the next one or in skills and things like that. And she was, she'd have an approach about more which skills you could pick up. So when I was doing distribution and that, I was sort of fostered in an area where you'd be, you'd learn different skills in different areas where they, probably because they see potential in you. But there were things like dealing with sales reps um, who would probably see customers or forward-facing clients every three weeks or so. Then we'd see truck drivers that saw them twice a week. And I realised that a lot of the truck drivers probably had better sales skills than the reps because they had a better relationship and they weren't pushing things. They just said, oh, this would probably work. This is a new thing we're doing. So we sort of started selling products through the truck drivers as well. So you'd just see things like that. Is that did I go? Did I answer that question, or did I go around the circle? Oh no! Uh, well, she, yeah. she, sorry, Joanne would. Um, yeah, I think it was probably her that encouraged me because she'd say I was doing this job and I thought I needed area skills in this area, so I just did a sideswipe and took that role for six months. So 
I sort of had that confidence that oh, well, if it if it fades or or the or the business doesn't need that role anymore, I can go into another. Because there were a couple of roles I took. One was a regional role. That I think was I was meant to be out there for a year, and after about three months, I was like, "This is actually stupid. We don't need someone in this position. Why don't we just close it?" And I come back and do something else. It's really interesting. You have seem to have a knack and a very high sense of self awareness, which is rare, especially considering you were in your mid to late twenties yeah, during yeah. this stage, where a lot of people don't have that, or they have. You both deluded. Well, <laughs> I was probably slightly deluded. I, I think that's the answer. No, now that you've said it, I agree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but often in that age period, you can have a lot of delusions around where you want to be. Or you I can may have, have been deluded. I may have been deluded. But you have self-awareness enough to put yourself in a very uncomfortable position of a role that you don't think you're good at for the sole purpose of... I'm going to learn something here that's valuable. Mm. That yeah. seems quite calculated. Yeah, I, I think it, I, I look back and I think it was, but it might have been naivety. May have just been a little bit silly. It's interesting. You even <laughs> and kicked, it worked out well. You, know? you even kicked it, off the interview by saying, you know, I think a lot of it happened by accident. I think I don't think it was as planned. Like I, I look back now and I, I, there's so many things I've said yes to because I just think, oh, well, I haven't done that before. Or I'll learn something new, but I, I don't think it's that calculated. It doesn't come from a highly intelligent place. It's more like, oh, it seems good. We've touched on a really interesting idea. The idea that simply pursuing things that are worth learning or that you deem worth doing means the act in which you'll learn it is worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, that's a fantastic thing out there for people who struggle with the anxiety of, do I want to take this thing? I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Just give it a go because the learning is where the value is. Sometimes so it's true. not the outcome. Yeah, and we, we're all doing that. Like a lot mm. of people, they appear they know what they're doing, but they're also a little bit nervous about what they're doing or, you know, you want a good outcome for it. So, Yeah, I think that's something we've also explored with a lot of our guests yep. is this idea of the uncomfortable situations, the situations that almost not set you up for failure, but give you positions where you can fail or can mm. have setbacks or not be performing in your strength are actually the things that push you forward, mm. not mm. the scenarios where you keep yourself in a really comfortable spot. Yeah, a couple of your episodes I heard people say that that I was quite shocked by. Brianne West, when she was talking about public speaking, how she used to feel violently ill and things like that, I was like, but you've always been a good public speaker. Like, and I guess that was a skill or maybe she had to learn to be more relaxed, but I was like, I find that unbelievable. Yeah, it's interesting because we found that as well. Like chatting with Brienne amazed me because she was so engaging. Mm. And a mm. lot of our guests, all of the strengths that they had when they came into the interview and were chatting with them about all came from a place of learning and identifying that might not be yep. a strength or might be something they need to upskill in. Mm. Mm. How did you go from working at Coca-Cola and picking up photography jobs here and there and, and still mm. being able to pursue that, but not, I guess, as the core piece when did that change from a professional passion to a professional vocation? Uh, I, well, I had a couple of other years with other companies. So I worked with Disney for a while and then went over to uh, the Middle East and was working with Sony um, for two years and, That's and a little bit in recruitment. large companies. Coca-Cola, yeah. Disney I, and I Sony. I feel like we can't glance over that. No. No, but, but <laughs> at in, all. In, incredible roles and incredible companies. Um, what that, were you doing with those businesses? I was a state sales manager for Disney, which was looking after 
reps that, and sort of more a key account management role with a lot of large retailers. Um, but you had reps that looked after at the time was at home entertainment, which was when DVD sales were just going through the yeah. roof and things like that. Also toys, cinemas, um, a whole variety of things. They were just roles like that really, but it was um, it, it was really good. But I, I think something within me changed and I would still be hitting sales targets and things like that, but I went through a period where I was like, what is wrong with me? I'm hitting sales and that, but I'm just not that engaged. And I think I, within me, I didn't want to be an employee anymore when I look back at it. And But I'd still always hit those targets and that, but was just not really into it as much. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that's what changed. I just knew I wanted to start my own business. And I started ingesting a lot of material about that and sort of working up to it and getting ready for it and things like that. And I had conversation with, fr- with friends and that, and so many friends were saying to me when I said, oh, what do you think I should do? They were like, you've always done it. You're shooting campaigns for these companies and things and it was like oh so so obviously in front of me that I hadn't seen it and I have had um one thing I heard that I really liked once is when they were talking about people starting businesses they said that if you don't know what to do and you're not sure often it's something you did as a child before you thought you could earn an income out of it or you know before life got serious and you it's usually sitting back there that you used to do that which I always used to mess around with cameras yeah, all those photos of you messing around Blue and trying different and, things yeah. and that kind of turned into the professional passion. Mm, mm. So you took your own step. You started your own business. Yep. Is that still in Aussie? Were you No, here. Oh, here, actually. Yeah. yeah. So met my partner, Ollie, and moved here. Um, and that, that was actually a really good step. I was talking about it to Jack, your producer, actually, about it before you arrived. Um is that in a city the size of Christchurch where everybody knows everybody, I think it can be a real advantage because in other places there's a lot more cowboys or you won't often meet people or run into them again, whereas here where everyone knows everyone, if you do a good job or a bad job, everyone will find out. So if you're reliable and consistent, it can be really really handy and you can use that to your advantage. I never actually considered that. It's so good. The size of Christchurch actually Mm. affecting the quality of work. Yeah. We're a small village. Well, that's it. The amount of people you're like, oh, I know this person. Like, oh, that guy. It's wild in, in any respect. So, yeah, look how many incredible creative people there are here. Like mm. when you had Clive Anthony, who's done a variety oh, of businesses and things man. like that. And mm. that these people keep popping up and they're just great. Yeah. And also, I feel like we've got a culture that enables it. And mm. Kiwis, especially, mm. we're very community driven. Mm. And I think it's something that I'd, I've written down. Dave has spoken about people in every second sentence. You seem to be a very people-centric and community-centric person within Mm -hmm. everything that you've done. I I think my job, I'm dealing with people 24-7 and whatever results you have, you're part of a team. Mm. Yeah. I'm curious, would you attribute, I guess, the rapid growth or, or the success that you've experienced, would you say that that aspect of who you are that ability to communicate and make people feel comfortable because I, I know people have worked with you and, and they rave every time i say oh i'm working with dave they're like oh, i love dave that's nice yeah um so you get good feedback you get great feedback christchurch um do you attribute that aspect of your personality to the success you've seen i think it would be part of that um because i think being photographed is very unnatural for people so a little bit how we were chatting before you pressed record, it, it makes made me feel calm, it sort of keeps the process flowing. 
I think I'm doing that a lot to models and people on shoots, um, just talking to them so that they know you're not imposing, you're not scary. Because I've been on shoots um, assisting where people hardly speak and the models are posing and doing things or, or the subject is and the photographer is just hiding behind the camera and it's like it's a bit of a weird vibe. Yeah. I wonder, is there any specific shoot that you've been on that you particularly remember being <laughs> exceptionally uncomfortable? Of mine, not really, because I will talk so much to fill up the uncomfortable space until they talk back. Yeah. Is that a skill that you've always had? Do you think it's inherent or do you think that all of that sales experience you had before you mm. came into film doing your own business? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, maybe I have always talked a lot, probably too much. But I, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that My probably would have. That problem. I was going to say yeah. I can yeah. relate massively to this. Yeah, yeah. But I, that, it probably helped. It probably helped sort of being a bit more structured about what I'm doing or when you – work with different brands, you're dealing with CEOs, you're dealing with marketing managers and people like that who are quite high up in a business. So you learn how to work with people across all levels. So not much phases me really. Mm. And I guess probably the same at Coca-Cola. I had great advantages dealing with people in different states who were mm. really high up, mm. um, who gave you their time. So I wasn't that intimidated by their status or roles. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think working for those large huge multinational companies definitely would have had an aspect of setting you up for success because the types of people you get to deal with and also the types of people who work for those companies are normally type A, quite driven people. Yeah, although although they're the same as us. Like I, mm. that, that's one thing I've noticed with a lot of other creatives um, where I'm work, if I'm working with a big corporate, some other photographers and people I know have said, oh, what's that like? Are they really? And I'm like, oh, they're just the same as us. As you and I, just mm. because they're in a role like that doesn't mean they're all like power suits and, you know, <laughs> what, what, what you think <laughs> from television, yeah. they're, they're good at their job, but they're, you know, mm. no different from you and I. Yeah. When, so when you started going into photography on your own business, what sort of photography were you doing? And then how did it go to the next level? Because obviously where you are now is at levels and levels above where you were when you started. Yeah, and I, also on a global census. Massive. I feel like just before we get into that, you've ju you mentioned you've moved around like three or four times before you, at the very crux of the business. Mm. I think we've got to look at the start before we move on. Yeah. Because you said you'd move to um, the Middle East, then to New Zealand, and then the business starts. Yep. That's a lot of change. And you've, you're beginning the conception of the business. Yeah, but I, I think where I live is irrelevant. Tell us about that. It's, it's, Why? I, I don't know, I've just always felt comfortable with what I'm, or wherever I live, it doesn't really matter to me. And I think even like living in those seven or so towns for Coca-Cola, I feel that not having a support structure or people that know you is actually really good for you and your growth mm. because you can just start something new. Mm. Does that make sense? I can massively relate to that from my upbringing as yeah. well. We moved around yeah. tons because of my dad's job. Yep. Didn't sort of live anywhere the same for two years in a row until I was 13. And I think inherently it made me more adaptable because you just you have to be. Yeah, you have to talk to new people. You have to go out and, yeah. I, I, I've never really thought about it that way, but I think that that's probably a large part of it. Mm. Because I I know people who... You, you could be like this if you've lived here your whole life, who have grown up in a town and never left and I think they're held back in a certain way. They still have their same friendships from school, which can be good, but you could also just be friends because you went to the same school. 
Um, so they're sort of held back a bit. So people will think, oh, this person, they, they're good at this, but they like this. And it's like, well, that's what they were at 14 or 15. They're not like that now. They're mm. completely different people. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah, I really mm. wanted to touch on that to see if that was a key part. But it's strange. Mm. And it is strange. I, funnily enough, I'm one of the people who's stayed in Christchurch my whole life. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Not a bad It'd thing, a as you say. Thing. But yeah. there is a real, um, I guess, skill and, and knack that you've gained from being able to travel around and be comfortable in those environments. Mm. I was curious if when starting the business within New Zealand, you were felt stunted in any way or you were able to really quickly make connections? I was able to make connections really quickly, but once again, it could have been naivety or stupidity. Like there were so many coincidences and things that happened where you'd just be talking to someone who would need something, which which I think is the same with any business really. It's quite simple. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just get started. I'm solving a problem yeah. for you in exchange for Well, you're money. providing a service. Yeah, yeah. Even though it is creative, it, it is a service. So you have yeah. to, you know, find out who needs things and contact people and... Yeah. Mm. Jack would probably be a good one to talk to about, about, about that because before you arrived I was talking to him about things he's doing and companies he's working with and I'm thinking, oh, it wasn't that long ago I was doing that and how, how you get from A to B and how We're going to bring good producer Jack on now. Yeah, we should <laughs> at some stage. <laughs> you guys can sit down and yeah, we'll, we'll actually just go swap jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll get out, Jack can sub in for us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's mm. good. But like one, also once again, I've just thought of something else. The size of Christchurch is one job leads to another job. So you do a good job. The next time somebody says, oh, who did that for you? They'll say, oh, Dave, he did this and that and was on time and did what we wanted. Mm. It just leads to more and more work, I think. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I, th I think that raises a really interesting callback to the start of your journey. You said it all happened by accident, but I don't think it did. I think it just talks to like the power of serendipity. You learn something at one job, which enables you to do something at another. Yep. And everything kind of snowballs. It's mm. not necessarily an accident or unplanned. Yeah. But there's a certain trajectory mm. and being able to pull out the learnings from each of those is a skill in itself, I think. Yeah. I don't think it was a... There were times in my life in other fields where I had a purposeful trajectory and wrote out plans and lists and things like that that when I look back, I always achieved as well. So I look mm. at that and I think, oh, that was pretty strange that that happened. Some of them were pretty unrealistic goals, but yeah. What was the most outrageous goal you set yourself? Oh, gosh, th this sounds really weird, but I was in a band with friends um, in Wyala, um that we started out, we were probably about 17 or 18, and we had these really lofty goals that we wanted to release an album, we wanted to do this and that, and it happened. But we, down to the detail of... Um, we gave a tape to Warren Ellis, who is now uh, a member of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and they released our album and helped us, and we supported them a few times and things like that. So, what? yeah, I know. I know we, <laughs> this is crazy. We glassed over straight to Coca-Cola, and I'm missing the fact that you were a frontman in a band. Oh, no, not frontman. I, I was with three people who were, but, um, but, it, but it was really good, and... It was a really good experience. Released an album which is still on iTunes and things like that. But yeah, it was it was that. yeah, it was it was these weird unachievable goals. We're gonna get that for the show notes afterwards, and we're yeah. going to zoom it back in. Yeah, but th but things like that, it um, it gave you confidence in different areas and made you go, oh wow, this is quite simple to put something together and achieve something. And yeah. Mm. It's so interesting and I guess that that taught you a lot about the creative process as well. Yeah, I think it could have actually, yeah. 
Yeah, really interesting. Didn't even think that was related, but it could be. Could be. Well, I think that's a serendipity piece, right? Mm. Everything you've done has mm. given you a skill to help succeed where you are now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we just wanted to interrupt this episode to say thank you so much for listening to the Progress Podcast. It really is a dream of ours to bring these stories to life and we really couldn't do it without your support. If you feel like you've gained any value or have learned something incredible from these conversations, we would so appreciate a subscription from you on this platform. We really want you to join us on the Progress journey and join the Progress community. Let's get back to the episode. So you've found yourself within New Zealand, you've been here for a brief period of time and you find yourself photographing the Prime Minister. Now, something you've said to me, you've told to Tom as well, is he gave you some business advice that is pretty harsh, but man, does it sound like it was valuable. Yeah, that, that was a good one, actually. That was um, in, in the early days of having my business and it was John, uh, Sir John Key, John Key then, um, and... When I was photographing him, I had a bit of downtime as well in between and just talking to him about it because I knew about a little bit about his background being in business and that, I sort of said to him, oh, you, you, were, you were good at business. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> very, very, very naive and green. And um, he, I said, oh, I've just started a new business here. This is what I'm doing and things like that. And he said, oh, what kind of clients have you got? And I told him about a couple I had that were quite small and he said, oh, how much do you earn from them? And it wasn't an awful lot. And I said, well, what, you know, what would your advice be like that? I said, they, they don't earn a lot, but they're good bread and butter jobs. And his advice was very direct. And he said, oh, if you do bread and butter, you'll eat bread and butter, so you should get rid of them and focus on more bigger clients or better work and things like that. And it was, it really shook me because, I don't know, in the early days you're told to do whatever you can and just work on it. But that, so I guess someone like his level to just sack your clients that you didn't like or, or that you didn't think were earning you enough or something took me quite a few years to almost come to terms with that. Well, that's tough. Yeah. I want, like you said, it took a few years, but how did that change how you saw the value of your own work? I, it just sort of made me realise that you can put in the same effort with things that aren't having that impact. Mm. And um, I don't know, you, you, you have an awful responsibility, I think, with a camera that if you're shooting a campaign with a company, it can really determine their sales for six months or longer. Um, and it's also the, the image people have of their brand as well. So you think, oh, you might work with a company that employs a couple of hundred people. If you don't deliver and you're not having a good day and produce a good product, it can affect those jobs. It can affect everything, like no pressure. So the more you think about it, it's, yeah. That's really stressful. interesting. You're like setting the tone, the brand voice, yeah, and the way that they put themselves out in the world. Yeah, and interpreting what they're envisaging. Because, like, I mean, I here you work with a lot of creative directors and... Um, and graphic designers, and that, a lot of young people who are super talented, like there's Elizabeth Locke, who worked with Ballantines for a few years, and she's just recently moved to Genora, who they set the tone, they, they get the best out of you. There's young people that are, you know, learning the ropes too, I guess, but so have such a strong vision they can communicate, but, yeah. <laughs> it's just, just impressive because you're sort of, um, you're, you're capturing what they want, and then as a photographer it's quite odd in some ways, you almost get the credit for what a team of people have put together. Wow. It can be unusual. We kind of get that luxury. Jack puts in all the work and... <laughs> we just sit on the couch just, and ask questions. No, I, I was about to say look pretty, but I was going to say, do we achieve that? Oh, you're, you're pretty. <laughs> oh, oh, you stopped that. Yeah, good. Outrageous. Good you, mate. Outrageous. <laughs> I was not fishing. Um, I'm really interested. So, so John Key said, if you work bread and butter, you'll eat bread and butter. Mm. 
I guess that challenged you to think about who your dream clients would be and what your dream style of photography or area of photography would be. What vision did that set you on? Oh, it, it probably didn't in a way because I think you still say yes to everything, but it just, I don't know, it sort of gives you a bit more confidence, mm. more direction in what you're after. I, th- I think that would be it. Mm. Yeah, because mm. you, you can run around and do everything for everyone, but not really get a niche area and learn proper skills. Although having said that, I, as, as I grew up, I did that. And I guess I've still done that as well. Mm. Really, like there's, there's some jobs that I will say yes to because I'm not comfortable with. Or, or think, oh, that's something I haven't done. I know I can achieve it. I know I can get the results they want, but it's not something I'd prefer to do. Interesting. Yeah. So what was the next step in your journey from this shoot? What came next after well, these first few years within New Zealand? Um, really just developing those skills, and I think that's pretty much from, from then till today, just continuing serious. Just continually shooting and getting better and um, working with people and providing what they want. Like how, I, I guess it's very visual. Um, photography is visual. That wasn't my brightest moment. <laughs> compared, compared to if you're an accountant or something like that, you're never going to yeah. see a spreadsheet on billboards or the back of a bus or something like that. But so much of the work you do as a photographer is out there in the public sphere. So people see it and you get jobs and opportunities that other people wouldn't get just through that. Um, which I, which I think is quite natural, but it, it feels a little bit unnatural. So you do have moments where you look at it and, yeah, it can be quite odd. And I, I think also that um, with photography, if you're any good at it, you will photograph famous people, you'll photograph models and business owners and people like that. Um, and I've seen a few people where that can affect their idea of who they are or what they do that, they start to think they're the famous person. It's like, no, really, you're just, you're just capturing it. You're lucky enough to have them in front of your camera. It amazes me how you have stayed so incredibly humble with the places you've gone, the people you've met. and Oh, that's easy because you're always part of a team. It's like even when I've worked yeah. with you, there's 10 people behind the scenes and things like that. And some of the biggest shoots I've been on, there's so many people. You're almost a camera operator. Like you'll still mm. get what they want and creatively do what you want, but it's almost signed off before you're there, exactly the angles and what are required and things like that. Mm. Yeah, And that that might sound humble, but it's just true. Well, yeah, it's funny. When, when um, I have the, the pleasure of going on shoots with you, I always feel like, shucks, who am I to be telling Dave what no, kind of shots I need? No, but I love that. I love that. I've, <laughs> I've even been on shoots where some rando will walk past and go, why don't you try this? And a lot of photographers probably, that would get their back up. But I'm like, well, can they see that I can't? What? Do you know what I mean? If, mm. if you try it and it doesn't work, you just don't use it. But uh, any ideas are good. But having that vision also, you think of yourself as the designer, you know your market, you know the people that are wearing the product, the ad space you need. Mm. So you have a lot clearer vision than me going, oh, that looks cool, I'll focus in on that. Like, so it gives you a lot more direction. It's a lot more intentional. That really links back to all of that self-awareness that we discussed earlier. Because mm-hmm. like you say, like I feel like a lot of creatives and photographers and anybody who's within that scene might not necessarily take direction particularly well or is, has a very set creative process. Yep. But you seem pretty open to admit that you're not going to be a subject matter expert in every area that you're photographing. It's very collaborative. Mm. Yeah. And um, like some creative directors I have, like it all, all rides on them. They'll have a real vision that you have to capture 
And you can have some accidents and mistakes and things. Often they are mistakes that they go, oh, we quite like that more. But it, it's rare. Like it's a bit more intentional, particularly when you're dealing with a marketing budget for a company that will last them six months. You've got to be really intentional. Mm. You talked a lot about how you work in a lot of teams. Mm-hmm. But obviously you're still Dave Richards. You have your own solo thing. Do you yep. build these teams around the shoots that you're involved with? or Yeah, I th- I, I, a lot of times I do. And there's a lot of creatives I work work with um, that work in hair and makeup and things like that. You know, they're just great and they're quick and they get things done and things like that. Because um, you get some people who try to reinvent the wheel and it's like, oh, come on, we don't have forever. You know, you know it's a quick job. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's working with people like that. And I, I guess also people that you have a good rapport with that are professional turn up on time and, yeah. Mm, yeah, and I think, once again, that's something that is so important in this particular industry is finding that collaborative group that you can go to and know what to expect from. Yeah. You talked about it with the, the size of Christchurch, but I guess it's on the global stage where you operate on too. Yeah. Knowing the, the group of people who does great work and who will yeah. help you execute. A lot of them are from New Zealand as well. Like um, even some of the people I work with in uh, Wellington, like Hill Cook, um, does a lot of hair and makeup and things like that. But she's worked on like a lot of Marvel movies and things like that. Oh, wow. Sort of worked from Weta, but they're all very humble about it because they think, oh, yeah, I worked on that, I worked on this job. And it's like, mm, it's still pretty amazing. But Kiwis are just very humble about it generally. I think they just see it as another job. It is super interesting. Mm. Do you think that way about the work that you've done? Because um, I know you can't say a lot of stuff here on NDA, but you've worked with huge international brands. Do people come up to you with the same sort of thing of like, oh, man, I get to work with Dave? And oh, I don't know if they'd say that or if I'd hear that. Oh, we all get on well mm. and things like that, but um, I don't know if they do. I, th- I think it's more just a probably building a cohesive team. My um, thing is... Just all the people you work with, you get something from and you get mm. to learn a little bit about, um, especially uh, pr- probably more so than the subjects you're photographing but the people in the businesses. So you're dealing with marketing departments and you get you quite often get to know the CEOs and what the vision is or, or the board and mm. where they're headed. So um, or, or like a Christchurch band, I've worked with quite a bit, Alchemy Equipment, Cam that started that, you get to know his journey of the businesses he's had before and where he's going with the product, working really closely with the designer, creative and things like that. So you just get to know where they're headed. It's a bit more exciting. Mm. Yeah. When you get to work so intimately with all of these brands, whether it's a New Zealand brand or a big international, I have no doubt that you will have had the opportunity to go and work in-house at one of these companies. Why stay solo? Why stay as an external mm. party? Why have you not gone and worked in a large company again as a director yeah. of photography or a creative director? I think having been outside of it, I would be quite unemployable now. <laughs> <laughs> I highly doubt that. that wow, is, that's a great answer. Is that, is that a bad way? Oh, no. I, I'd You're going to have to explain I'd this. Yeah. Still, I'd probably still get the job, but I'd be like, oh, come on, I want to do something different. Like I want to change it up a bit. And I think doing the one style the whole time would drive you a bit nuts. Do you feel like that is a little bit of a creative curse? That that's a, you know, you want to be doing something different. You want to have the excitement of trying yeah, something yeah, here I think, and trying I think something it could somewhere be. else. Yeah, and I, I think I can border on becoming a one-dimensional workaholic because I love what I do so much. So I 
I'm very lucky in that I've never had one day where I've woken up and gone, oh, I've got this today. Every day it's like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is just amazing. That yeah. is gone. Yeah, I which, wanted to bring I up love. that quote. I had that written down, but you've said oh. it organically. It's great. It's oh, I so think I may cool. have said it to you, but it's you, so you true. I really... That really resonates with me where yeah. I'm like, wow. And I, how many people get to do that? Yeah. Well, you said it right at the beginning when you were talking about how do I go about starting a business and, you know, Sometimes it's just the thing that you did as a kid and thought you mm. couldn't make money out of. So true. Now you've made it not only the thing that you loved as a kid, but you're but doing you can, it every day. Yeah, yeah. That's just pure gold, yeah. really. And even even like last night I had a deadline for a client, which doesn't happen all the time, but I was working till about 2 a.m. And that, that sounds less glamorous than it was. I was actually at a comfortable computer with a big glass of water listening to podcasts enjoying myself but it was like this is fantastic i wouldn't rather be doing anything else it's really good yeah it's funny you've said that you're uh, uh, i guess a self-proclaimed workaholic mm-hmm. you love working till 12 at night you told me that that i know yeah you're a bit, it's, it's not that good I, yeah it's good yeah yeah to what value or do you put on i guess your own time your ability to create when you feel the need oh, i don't really put any on that i feel you have to create when you have to yeah like um i know a lot of people who are like that i don't know that that artistic idea that they yeah have to be in the mood they have to be inspired whereas i don't believe in inspiration i just think you have to get up work and you'll get results and like even when people feel motivated or don't i'm like well that's stupid that's not even (laughs) just do the work yeah your perspective is very, very interesting. It is very interesting. And I, I definitely agree with you. There's a level of um, motivation only gets you so far. You have to be disciplined. You have to be... It's not even real motivation. It's just a mood. Mm. Yeah. I'm curious, do you ever battle with that or is this something that's not even on your radar? Not really. Cause I've taught myself like I'll have every day. I've got tasks I've got to do. So some days I may not be motivated, but I find as I do the tasks, I get motivated. So it's just turn up. Uh, probably regular patterns mm. as well and times of start times and things like that. My schedule can be a bit all over the place because of different jobs starting at different times and that, but the days that I'm not and I'm on post-production, I'm there like a clock. What yeah. taught you the value of that? Because that has been such a recurring theme with everybody that we've talked to and everybody's been hyper-successful mm. in their own industries, whether that's yep. um, serial entrepreneurship or aerospace or cosmetics or creativity Everyone is such an execution-focused person. I think you have to be. I, th- I think it might be as you become busier and more successful, you just have to become quite pedantic and protective of that time. Mm. Yeah. I th- it's, it's hard to say. Or it could also be examples you see of people you work with as well and mm. talking to them because when I listened to your episode, Jackson, and you were talking about when you were working in retail and all these business owners you dealt with, you'd get all different skills and ideas from them. Mm. I was listening to that and I had a bit of an aha moment. I was like, oh, I guess I've always done that too. Like I'm on a photo shoot but I often can't shut up and I'm asking them questions about how how they got to where they are and what, what the steps were and things like that, breaking mm. it down. Yeah. So probably just genuine interest in people but ask, asking them how did you get from A to B, how do you structure your time, things like that. Mm. Two really good points I want to, I guess, just give my thoughts on. One is this idea of momentum. Mm-hmm. Which you mentioned, you know, if you don't have any motivation, you just start. Yep. But there and then is, you'll be motivated. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> fantastic. There's, there's neuroscience behind it. It's you activate first and then motivation yep. follows. 
um, oh man, I can't remember exactly what I was listening to. It was, a, it was an old guy who was talking about gardening. And he used to struggle to get, get in the garden with his old body, but once he started, the desire to garden would keep coming. Yep. And he'd eventually yep. have once to, you see your results. Once you see the results. And he'd yeah. have to take himself away from the garden. Yep. But it is a key message out there for everyone who struggles to start. The best thing you can do is start. Yeah, and you'll get better and better at what you do. Mm. And even if you're a creative and you might be doubting yourself, look in a city this size, how many people there are who make a living out of it, who do incredibly well. There's room for more. Mm. And, a, and a fresh fresh eye, fresh fresh viewpoint. It also brings into perspective that idea of like execution is everything. One of my favourite interviews of all time was an interview with Obama when he was just about to exit okay. being the US president. Yep. And the interviewee, interviewer asked him, what's one piece of advice you would give to someone who really wants to succeed in whatever they're doing? And his answer is, learn to execute. Talking about doing the thing is not doing the thing. Planning yeah, okay. for doing the thing is not doing the thing. Having a meeting about doing the thing is not doing a thing. Yeah. The biggest value you can ever bring and the biggest happiness you can bring yourself is executing because mm, procrastinating mm. is not fulfilling. Mm. That's that's good. He'd know. Yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. And I thought it was interesting because I'd always I hadn't read like Obama's book or anything, and I thought well, this could be an interesting interview. Yeah. But he was a hyper successful person in his own right far before he was absolutely U.S. Yeah. president, and I'd never even really considered that. But it was such an interesting insight, and it's something that I've seen ring true with all of the people I've been lucky enough to learn from. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in things or I think what I was saying before about motivation too is I know people who get a bit down in the dumps, they'll get a bad phone call and it throws their day out or things like that. I'm not really, this sounds a bit odd, really not that interested in emotions or, or how I feel about a particular thing because I think it can get in the way of what you've got to achieve. They can sort of... Like, no, if someone's in a good mood or a ridiculously good mood or a bad mood, they're not always going to make the best decision. You almost have to be quite level-headed and just get things done. Does that make sense? It's an interesting perspective because I think it's... a bit like a robot. Well, it's sort of like (laughs) an interesting idea that you're not going to make the best decision if you're far too overexcited or far too in a good mood and you're also not going to make the best decision when you're in a bad mood. Like, the extremes of um, emotion are not going to drive a good decision either way. Yeah, yeah. Or a good result. Yeah. Yep. I've never thought about that. It's funny. Some of the things that I, I really appreciate you do, about you, Dave, is um, there's like this almost contradiction of a really robotic part of you yeah, and it's there. an exceptionally <laughs> creative part. But I, I think it's funny that you uh, you mentioned this sort of robotic-like um, approach to work, but you look at all the things that have laid out the pathway to get you to where you got and you don't, attribute that to being calculated yeah i don't maybe i am or the maybe it was accidental i think when you look back you can always see patterns and things emerge Mm. but i at the time i didn't think i was that calculated but having said that there's been things i've said today that you've dragged out of me that i've been like (laughs) that was really weirdly calculated for you (laughs) like you know what i mean yeah like even like staying at the newspaper and pretty much refusing to go i knew i'd get a job i knew that i'd you know leave with something i wrote that down mm. applied for a part-time role saying i will be full-time within two weeks i knew i would be yeah and if like how did you know or I, what was what were you so sure about i just know that if you and I, I guess this could go for anyone if you really want something this sounds a bit weird you can get it so if, if it's a really good 
if you want, say, say a company you really like and respect, they have a job that's not that good, that is part-time and you're in a full-time role, you can get that job and work really, really hard, show them what you've got and end up with a full-time job in no time. Like it's the reward far outweighs the risk. If, if you mm. show people what you're made of, they'll go, oh, we, we want to keep them around. You know, I've never really thought about that. Mm. I, I was in a scenario where I, um, I worked for um, a trust doing social work. Yep, yep. I did that for a few months. Mm. The job was only meant to last two weeks. Yep. And they were looking for a 40-year-old woman who had admin experience. But I went, well, bugger it. i got nothing better to do. Yep. And like you said, I did and I outworked what was expected of me. And before long, it was like, oh, I've got a job. Yeah. yeah. It's the same, I never as, clicked, though. same as people who would look at a job and say, oh, this only earns this much. I need to earn more. Take the job. Show them what you're made of. Grow it till you can earn that. Mm. It's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. Be results oriented. I have a yeah. very similar story. Like end of my first year of health science when I decided not to keep doing medicine, I went and worked as a Christmas casual at Rod and Gun, yep. which was supposed to last six weeks. Once again, learning different skills. Well, exactly. I was like, I'll go into retail. I'm a people person. I yeah. can I can do this. I was managing the Miravale store in three months. Yeah. Wow. Just because I stuck wow. around. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm here. I'm taking a gap year. I may as well work my ass off and try yeah. and do something about it. But it's just, it's that around proving people wrong and proving your value. Yeah, and you think of that too, within three months managing a store, you never would have thought that seeing a part-time job. It's so achievable just getting in and working hard. Yeah, people really underestimate the value of hard work. Mm. Um, but you clearly don't. Do you think your upbringing had an impact on that? Because you said you grew up in rural Australia. What was, what was your upbringing like? What was the parent um, life like? I don't know. It was pretty much um, my parents and a lot of people I knew, I think because we were quite remote as well, you were just encouraged. So mm. we were never really told, oh, you can't achieve that because it was a, a area that size that if you needed something or wanted to know, people would know who to get in touch with to make that happen. So I, I think it was just all maybe a bit idealistic or naive again, um, just never really doubted anything. Yeah, which might be a really nice place to come from where you just whatever you want to do happens. <laughs> I don't know, but it was just a series of coincidences and things or, or not really doubting yourself. I think it's really interesting because it's it's such a case, I always think about this idea of nature versus nurture. Yep. I think there are lots of things that are nature, like what you actually have inherently is you, mm. like your creativity, your natural curiosity, the way that you like to question things and put yourself in positions of uncomfortability to learn mm -hmm. but there's definitely a nurture aspect of having a, a family environment and an upbringing where you were encouraged to try things and try new things and that yeah. you weren't necessarily going to fail and you could do things yeah def definitely things like that or you always i don't know maybe maybe it was more my parents that there was this safety net where if it doesn't work They'd encourage you, oh, well, if that doesn't work, you try something else. You do something different. It wasn't wasn't like this is the only opportunity you've got. You know, you just knew that there was a lot out there, which probably growing up in a rural environment helped because, as I said, we had the advantage of getting bored. And when you were young, you didn't like it that much. You wanted to get out and move to a city. And it gave you an ambition that people who were already in cities didn't have. And... I don't know, I look back now and think, wow, we had it so good. Why would you ever want to leave? It was actually quite amazing. One of those things you didn't really appreciate at the time, but you had a, 
a network and things that you would never have in other places. Mm. Yeah. Because everybody knew everybody. And so you had to be accountable. You had to behave. You couldn't do anything wrong or your mum would find out by the time you got home. You know, <laughs> that kind of place I would find out or see you. Or, yeah. not, that I, not that I was bad. Such a great line. I love that. Mm. Got to be careful, otherwise you got to find out. Your mum will find out before you get home. Oh, you would, you That's would. Great. You couldn't do anything wrong. You'd be like on your bike and something. <laughs> up to. Yeah, that could probably set you up for your mum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You seen what Dave's been doing? Yeah, that definitely set you up for success. So I think coming yeah, into I the working so. world, especially in Christchurch, like you said, small town. Yeah, big, big, town. big city, but small. New Zealand's second biggest, but it does have that thing where everybody knows everybody, which mm. I think is good. A real strength. Yeah. And. When I first moved here, um, quite odd, like I've known a lot of young people who have left and they see more opportunity in Australia and I'm like, like there is, you can earn more and things like that, but you can also do things very well here. Look at how many great companies there are that have even started up since I've been here and before that I I had no idea were from here. Yeah. Well, I think it's this thing of, like you said, uh, you said this earlier, you know, the money's over there and if you're pursuing the money, it is there. Mm. But you're fully right. There is opportunities for something more than money in Christchurch, I feel. Mm. It's the ability to start something and make a make a dream happen. Mm. And you can still make that money. You can still export. But you can do it on a much easier scale without sitting in traffic for two hours a day. That alone, mm. time, like the value of time, right? Yeah. I think in Christchurch is huge. Mm, absolutely. You have the opportunity of a big city... You've got a community who'll rally around you while you do it yep. and encourage you to succeed. Plus, you don't have to sit yeah. on the Southern Motorway commuting yeah. into Auckland every every day. Yeah, I feel, for, I feel like for everyone listening, not in Christchurch, it's worth noting that I'm probably pissed off if I have to wait more than 20 minutes in traffic. And for everywhere else in the world, that is like a dream. Yeah. 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 For context, you can drive in. so sorry. No, yeah. it's true. And you can drive in from Rangiora, which is... 15 k's away? Yeah, about that. And in, yeah. in 25 minutes? Yeah. I have that quite often. I'm driving somewhere at peak hour and I'm like, oh, come on. And I'm like, hang on. I've sat in bumper to bumper for three about? minutes. This yeah. infuriating. <laughs> it's really not that bad. Yeah. yeah. It makes me realise why there's so many tech companies and things opening here too. Like, it's such an easy city to get around. The people or their employees can still get semi-affordable housing and things like that that they couldn't really in Wellington or Auckland. Mm, yeah, I mean, I live in Sydenham and I'm a 20-minute cycle maximum to the other side of the city. Yeah. And I'm a probably a seven-minute cycle to my office, which mm. is in the middle of the CBD. Or you're fast on your bike. Oh, it's a little yeah, fixy, nippy. <laughs> Another thing that is unique about you, Dave, is your, I guess, stealth presence online in a world of modern marketing, which is all about presenting everything. It's very hard to find... Anything about you online? Why do you do that and why do you value your privacy so much? I didn't think that was intentional, but when you brought it up, I'm like, maybe it is. I, I, it could be an age thing that I grew up in an era before oversharing and things like that. Um, one thing I find ridiculous is how much people talk about being authentic or authenticity or being your authentic self because I think no one's authentic with what they share. It's, it's highlights, it's, it's things like that. So I, I find that a bit of a joke. But I also don't like sharing, like, when I see someone and they're like, or, or someone my age and they'll share a photo of an iPhone box and they go, I've got a new iPhone. I'm like, yeah, well, you should be able to. You've got a job. Like, 
Do you know what I mean? It's not that incredible an achievement. But <laughs> I, I think too that um, one thing for me is a lot of the campaigns and things that you work on are quite secret, or not? They're, they're quite secretive, and you don't want competitors to know. Mm. So I've just sort of, the more I think about them, I'm like, am I allowed to share that? I don't know if I am. I'll just, I won't. Um, so oft, often my Instagram stories are art I like or what my cat's doing, things like that. <laughs> I, I just don't think sharing a lot is that important. Yeah, and I, I know some people who are like quite obsessed with it, where they'll go, oh, "We need content. We need this and that," and I'm like. Do you though? I don't, I don't think you do if you've got nothing to say. It's interesting because I feel like I I love photography. I follow a lot of photographers online, specifically this guy called Peter McKinnon who operates out of Canada. Yep. He also works with a lot of really big brands, does a lot of product photography, um, a lot of which he doesn't publish because he works under a lot of MDA, NDA. Yeah. However, alongside that, he's got all of his own content that he puts out on YouTube yep. and tutorials and has LUT packages yeah. and presets yep. and bits and pieces. Did you ever consider that route? Not really. I, I know a lot of people do sort of as an income stream and the, the teaching side and that. I've met, I mentored a few photographers. Like There's some great photographers in Christchurch I really get on well with, like Petra Mignot. I don't know if you know her. She's genius um matt lang um, oh matt lang's awesome yeah, yeah, there's, yeah there's some great people here that you you sort of help out they'll make a phone call or or need to use something or you know you wreck each other's brains on ideas but um no i've forgotten the question again that's not early onset dementia either that's just no well it's probably just <laughs> a far too complicated question no, yeah. it, was, it was more around why did you not go into oh, your own yeah, content yeah. creation or diversifying with selling a preset or lights oh, or things i've been too busy with work i think yeah, and I, I I think you you could do that with presets, but I don't. I think it's a bit of a bit of a dumb thing, really. I, I I find your best things come about when you're grading or messing around yourself, and you have happy accidents and things like that. Like I, it's great, and I there were times I I purchased things like that from photographers, and I still absorb a crazy amount of YouTube time um, looking at what people are talking about. But I I think if you use that, your work becomes like everyone else's. So for me. What inspires me with photography is not photographs. I'd look at paintings or be watching a movie and look at the colour grading and get more out of that than looking at someone else's work because before you know it, you've subconsciously copied it. That's really interesting from like an artistry perspective. Yeah, you're not looking key. at photos. You're looking at other expressions of art to inform your expression. Yeah, even if it's a sculpture or a painting, like you look at the lighting, you look at the angles, why they've decided to include that or not in a composition, you get a lot out of it that you can get in your work and be inspired by without feeling like you've based it on something that's gone before. Wow. That's so cool. And it's something I never thought about from a creative process as well, that you don't have to be inspired by yeah, that not same by your own vertical. Field. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just about stealing from everywhere you can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Which is like key to your story as well, being inspired by all the different areas and learning from all the different streams yeah, and the areas yeah. that you might not be strong in to influence the things that you are. Yeah, definitely. That's really cool. That's very, very cool. And I've got a... Oh, no. Sorry. No, what were you going to say? I need I to... I going to say also probably back to that naivety thing, not really knowing where you're going to end up. So those skills and opportunities you say yes to will often... You won't realise it at the time, but three or four or five years later, you'll be like, oh, hang on, I'm, I'm good in that area. I've done this or that. I didn't realise I needed it at the time, but it's just a skill that you've gathered as you've gone along. Mm. 
I love that. You know, don't know where you're going to end up. So mm. make sure you learn from all of the It'd experiences. Boring if you knew. So many things of just random jobs I've done or mm. places I've been that I attribute to putting me in the place or giving me the skills necessary yes. to take the next step. Yep. But I remember being in those situations going, why the heck am I here? Like, Well, your episode when you were talking about being in retail, mm. you think of that ability to just talk to people and ask them questions and form a bond straight away. I mean, both of you would have given you so many skills that you didn't think at the time. A lot of people see that as a job before their study or their career takes off, but I, I never did retail and I wish I had. The amount of entrepreneurs and business people who I know have learned a lot from selling in any field yep. mm-hmm. or from hospitality or retail, from yep. talking with people, making conversation, providing good service, yeah, and then actively taking those learnings into their jobs is just and I feel like every successful person who we've chatted with has a background in either selling or hospital or retail. Yeah, I, I think they would. Most I know would. I, I also, a lot of people see sales as a dirty word, but really you're only providing a solution. You're not forcing a dumb product on someone. I think if you don't have a sales aspect, aspect to what you're doing, you won't be very good or achieve anything. So if you can't, you can be the best person in the world or something, but if you can't sell it, what have you got? What did Bede say last time? We were chatting with this uh, awesome guy called Bede Kamikali last week. Yep. Um, he has an AI startup. Incredible, incredible. But when he first left university, he didn't know what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And he had a mentor who told him to go and sell used cars. And wow. he talked about wow. how... And he did a, a marketing degree and is very, very intelligent. And he was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a bit above that. You know, oh, of course. That's good advice. But yeah. he, he said... You know, it was a bit of a delusion because I realized, you know, maybe I should do it. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And everything he learned from that, he does now. Oh, I mean, it's pretty much his entire job at this point. He's How out brilliant. prospecting. He's just super passionate about what he's selling. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing. He um, said an interesting thing too about uh, there's an aspect of selling that involves storytelling mm-hmm. where if I can't sell you a story, I can't sell you the product. I can tell you about the product and you can go, that's awesome. And I go, this is how much it costs. And goes away and goes, maybe it's not for me. Yeah. I always found sales more listening, not even talking. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, when you're with the brand and you have products and things like that, you go in with a set idea of what you want. But I'd be meeting all these different kind of businesses and I'd just sort of talk to them about their business and listen to them. And I'd be thinking, well, that doesn't work for them. That doesn't. But you'd think, oh, well, this could make you money. This could help that or give a solution to that problem you've got. So it was more that for me than, oh, here's what I've got. No, that's yeah. really, really good advice. I think for people, especially in service-based yeah. um, businesses, but also for product bases, if, if you're listening to your customer, you're going to eventually stumble across a solution that, for a problem they're having. Yeah, or well, you are providing a service, well, whatever you're it. doing. And mm, if you're not, absolutely. it's not going to work. Yeah, make sure you're actually solving a problem that they actually yeah. have in yeah. their business, whether it's a product or a service. Yeah, and don't worry about your getting, just help them and it'll come. Such great advice. You said a really interesting quote, which leads really well, I think, into the last section of the podcast, which is, no one's authentic because of what they share online, it's all highlights. Now, and that's not being a real cynic. I'm just like, I don't know. No, but it's (laughs) true. And I feel like when you're in creative pursuits, whether it's photography or design, entrepreneurship, having a podcast. Having a podcast. <laughs> it's really hard to get past perfection. And a lot of creatives struggle with that. Mm. Yep. Um, it's a bit of a creative curse, another yeah. creative curse in a way. 
But one of the things I notice when I look at like the democratization of photography, if you want to call that, everyone's got an iPhone, DSLRs and mirrorless cameras are much more accessible now and take much, much better photos. Yeah. You've got amazing photo software and video software, which almost does it for you. But while it's easier to take photos and edit photos, there's always this lingering idea of only post the best stuff, only show the best stuff. Why do you think that is? Oh, that democratization of it with iPhones, that I love it. I love seeing what people do. And I, and I, I like that that's opened it up a bit. But I, th I think um, the better work you show, the better you're perceived. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but like, I mean, somebody taking a photograph of themselves 30 times then posting the best one, it's not necessarily vanity. It's just they want to present an image that's the best. But for photographers only showing the best, I mean, gosh, I've got some shoots where you shoot four or 500 shots in a day and you've got to produce one image. Mm. And people will see that and go, wow, that's good. You're really good at what you're doing. It's like you haven't seen what <laughs> a shot to achieve that if you saw that. And to other photographers, like... My files, my raw files are exactly the same as theirs. There's no difference. It's just I know how to tweak it, how to edit it, how to, what not to show someone, how to process something. Mm. So it's almost the formation of the art is just as important, right? It's the editing or the what you show people, what you don't. Mm. Jackson's probably had a better example because I did a shoot with him recently where I shot hundreds of photos and I didn't cut out the duds. So you've seen the truth behind oh, everything there. You saw the raw files. I like yeah. some, honestly, some of the ones that you didn't pick out in your sort of top selection, I'm like, Man, yeah, that's great. But let, let me know which ones. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> so yeah, quick. yeah far, we're, we're behind, we're, we've got a lot on at the moment, yeah. but <laughs> we're going to get that too. Yeah, but, but I don't think yeah. that's necessarily inauthentic. Like I can understand, like mm. I grew up in a period where every bad haircut, every bad band t-shirt that you regret is not on display forever digitally. It doesn't leave a footprint. Mm. That's what I wanted to touch on. You talked about the creative process and, and choosing what is the best and the most idealistic version of whatever you created. But you also talked about authenticity and not feeling like what people put online is authentic. Do you think those two ideas contradict each other? I think they do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think people are inauthentic to that way. I just think that everything's considered. Everything's thought out before you post mm -hmm. it. So you'd go, oh, hang on, no, I won't post that. That's a crap photo. It just looks like rubbish. So I don't, but I th I think that has come about the same time as authenticity has become a buzzword, and I just think it's mm. nonsense. Do you know what I find really interesting about all that? I feel like it's almost coming full circle, because you grew up in a time period where you've got the photos of you on the disposable cameras, doing trying all these different things. People can mm. flick back through and look at that. There's real authenticity to that photo, and then we saw a period where people were very curated online. Mm. Interestingly, in the last couple of years, I feel like authentic footage, um, the likes of your Emma Chamberlains who do really interesting, unedited, yep. long-style vlogs. You've got cameras like the Fuji X100V and the Leica mm. Q2, which are yep. single lens, yep. very similar style to those disposable cameras, just yep. in a high, higher mm. format. We've kind of come full circle. I feel like the style of photography and it's almost more accepted now to post authentic content. Yeah, I think so. There's some great people doing it. I my, One thing that I really hated is when people became a bit, I don't know, like with presets and things like that. If I look at a 
somebody's Instagram feed and everything is a certain colour of beige and orange. I'm like, oh, is that really? Do you know what I mean? And then you scroll down and then there's three in a row that are red and it's like, oh, is it really that curated? It's just a bit rubbish, isn't it? I don't, I don't, like, I don't like it. <laughs> you should yeah. check out our Instagram feed then. It's, it's kind of all over the shop. Say, no, but that's what I like. I like seeing different things and it, it, it all tells a story, but you can't be too over the bo- mm. overboard with it. Mm. Yeah. It's a fascinating time period. I, I do appreciate you guys touching on that because, I mean, it feels like this is the reason why we can do this. Yep. Is we are in a sort of a shift in, I guess, what media people are consuming in all creative levels. And this podcast style content, it, it does in many ways feel like presenting your authentic self because yeah. it's pretty hard to bullshit for an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. You sort of weed out the bullshit after. Yeah. Yeah. 20 minutes. I was going to say, people really know what they're getting if they meet us in person because we're exactly the same as we are on the couch. You are. Which you is are. probably slightly underwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing. No, no. no I, I think it's good that you're that way because, I mean, each time, or particularly at the start when we were chatting, then you started recording, I was like, oh, it just felt very natural. It was good. Because it is, being being recorded is an unnatural process. It's like when I've got someone in front of my camera, I often mm. have to relax them to start with because it's a weird process. It's, mm. yeah. Interesting. I guess I peeked behind the curtain when we first started. We were intentional about that from day dot. Now it just yep. sort of happens. Yeah. We're very conversational and then it flows into the interview. But at the start, we're thinking we need to sit them down, spend yeah. 15 minutes just chatting just with them, with the mic in front of them, not yeah. recording. The whole setup's there. Yeah. But it takes away from the illusion. And, you know, everybody else on the other end of the camera, they can't see this, yeah. which is the light. The beautiful lakeside view that we're all staring exactly. at. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, mm. exactly. Producer Jack just sitting off in the corner. <laughs> That's it. He's in a swimming pool at the moment. He is in a swimming pool. We've got a great view, splashing about. <laughs> got weird. Producer Jack's laughing. Authentic selves, <laughs> got, right? Got weird. We're yeah, taking no, it. We're taking <laughs> but I think... Um, Circling it back to that authenticity. I said you, I don't like authenticity or the word, and now you've just brought it up. Constantly. No, no, but I just, I just think it's important to circle back on the fact that it's not. It's a buzzword. It's word. a buzzword. It's like yeah. wellness. Yeah, exactly. Mindfulness. What, what is term. authenticity? Right. It's right, without getting too philosophical. It's more actually around when you're a creative, just making sure that you start. And produce something and post something and produce value. I don't even know if it's a relevant word. I think you just create something and then you go. And often the best work people do is when they're not being authentic, when they're where they want to be next. Like I know so many people in Wellington who are starting out who want to do fashion photography and they're shooting in the back of an alleyway and they're making it look fantastic with light and what they're doing and they want to look like they're in London or somewhere like that. And... So they're not being authentic, but they're doing beautiful work that gets them recognised. If it was all authentic, you know, would have all been earthquake chic <laughs> in in those years. That you it's know. funny. I actually disagree with you. Yep. I feel like. Oh, do you now? Yeah, I do. What a wanker. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but I, I feel like if someone has a vision for something they really want to create. Yep. Being your authentic self is to say, well, this is the vision. I can make that happen. I'm just going to try it. You know what I mean? It's it's very easy, I think, for some people to say, well, this is where I'm at. I'm gonna try and sell that idea, even if I don't care about it. You know yep, what I mean? Yep, it's, yeah. Hey, we're in Christchurch, and you say we're Quake City. I'll go shoot in an abandoned building somewhere and try and make that cool. But the fact that this person, this young person with vision, was like, 
okay, London fashion is where my mind's at. That's where I want to be. Yeah. I'm going to present that to the world and I'm not going to worry about the outcome or how people respond to that because that's what I want to make. Yep. Mm. I do agree. I th- authenticity is a buzzword, but I value people doing the thing that they actually want to be doing or presenting yeah. what they actually want to present. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's more th- around producing the content you want to produce rather yeah. than producing the content you think people want you to produce. Yeah, true. But that ideal vision to create something that you may have done locally came from somewhere. It came from some inspiration, you know. So it may not be your own necessarily. Not a lot of new ideas. I keep forgetting the quotes like good artists copy and great artists great steal. Artists steal. Although, but whatever you do, you'd be thinking of something you've seen. All artistry is iterative. Yeah. Like if we want to get right into the weeds, there's like, it reminds me of the different vertical, obviously, but Ed Sheeran's recent case, uh, copyright oh, yeah, case, yeah. where um, I can't remember the name of the song, but it was four chords. Yeah. And essentially the artist who he was going up against was trying to copyright a chord progression. Yeah. And they pulled out songs from the 1700s which had the same chord progression. Yeah, Lockwood. And, and won the yeah. case. And you wouldn't know what you've heard subconsciously that comes out. Mm. Yeah. And it's not to say that artistry can't be copyrighted or protected or patented, but yeah. it would be silly not to acknowledge that all artistry is influenced. Mm. Mm. Who are your biggest influences? Oh, mine would probably be I'm I'm influenced by entrepreneurs by business people um by podcasts by a few writers uh a few artists not not really in my own field so yeah it's a really strange answer did that make sense well no it's a whole bunch of different areas interesting that you can be inspired again by areas that aren't necessarily Mm. your own own area of expertise but i think that's what makes you unique and what i think makes your art and your photography so successful? Could I, yeah, I, I've never thought about that. Psychologist couch again, but yeah. I, I do. I don't know. Like you, you get inspired by what people achieve and see how they've done it, working with them closely. So that's more inspiring to me than another photo. Jack mentioned this to me actually when he was sort of describing you, because obviously you're a stealth online person. So Jack was my my pure yeah, source. Yeah, the only filter to, to yep. give information. But he talked about how. You're actually, from a business perspective, which showcases through your work with all of the large companies you worked with, you're very astute and you're really interested in investing in different businesses and mm-hmm. and that whole space. Why does that excite you so much? You, the first thing you led with was you're uh, inspired by entrepreneurs and business yeah. people. Why? I think just seeing that potential and those ideas and seeing people take a risk and seeing where that can lead them and by investing or being part of it, you really can get to help them and be part of that journey. Because I, I probably relative to what I was saying about uh, shooting campaigns with people, you are really a part of that team helping it grow. It, it hinges on what you all manage to create together. So it's probably just a next logical step for me. I, yeah, and I, I love seeing people take risks and just push new things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And if you can support in any way, I mean, if it makes a return, fantastic. If it doesn't, fantastic if it's something you believe in and it's good who cares see that's rare you're not only in it for the return you're in it for the supporting the person's dream and their vision and their creative expression yeah and that journey because some of them may not work first time around but you recognize that weirdness in someone who thinks they can do anything and achieve anything and it might be their third or fourth or fifth business but they'll they'll do it so you want to be along for when that happens 
so cool. That's epic. That's yeah. true, though, isn't it? You think of so many people that did have all these businesses that failed, but they were weird enough to keep going and believed in themselves enough or, yeah. or learned something each time. It's the thing that really gets me about entrepreneurs. And <clears throat> while I've co-founded a business, I wouldn't call myself like the the innovator. Mm-hmm. I love working alongside them and, and co-founding businesses yep. and working within them. But true entrepreneurs, true innovators are so dogged and mm. just so determined to create yeah which i find incredibly inspiring yep they just keep going they can't stop no yeah. logan my my co-founder of a sheer edge like absolute mastermind yeah incredible innovator like had made and sold four inventions by the time he was 23 yeah and Genius. now that's a compulsion it's incredible it's it's crazy it yeah. is it is purely an inherent desire to make change and mm. innovate and solve problems yeah yeah. Which is so cool. And that I find it so inspiring to to get behind that. And I'm really glad that you you do too. Yeah, it's it's such a privilege being around people like that. So you're on you're on set with them shooting and you get all this information. You think this is ridiculous. Like just just you would not in any other field get that exposure. I'm not sure if you can talk to us about this, but I'd be really interested as we close to think about you've obviously shot with some incredibly famous and well known people. Yeah. Is there more to them? than we expect, like, say, a celebrity who we know for one thing. Is there often more behind their exceptional nature? Oh, I, th- I think similar to the things we've talked about, they're just hard workers. I think, like, um, e- even politicians, like, uh, exposure to politicians in this country, I've worked with an awful lot from an awful amount of parties, and you, you look at people who are really... Oh, you know, they think there's some ulterior motive and this and that. And all the people you meet, you're like, oh, they actually just care. There's nothing sinister. Maybe they're not that good at their job, some of them, but they still, you know, they want to <laughs> achieve good things and they all most want to achieve the same thing. They've just got a different way of going about it. It's when you get closer to it, it's there's no mystery. And I think it's just being nice to work with, being professional, being hard workers gets them places. Yeah. There's, there's always that. You never meet somebody in a higher position and think, wow, how did it happen to them? They're really slack. You never see that. They're all quite driven and strange. Or strangely driven. Strangely <laughs> driven. I yeah. like that. Driven and strange and strangely driven. Yeah. I feel like that's a really good point to, to wrap up your story because it does. It seems like a story of just working really hard at your craft and what has flowed from that mm. is just evident. Yeah. And you've seen it with everyone you worked with. It seems to be that repeating pattern. Yeah, and you don't, you don't see it until you stop and get asked questions like this. It's quite odd. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're glad that you were able to reflect with us. Oh, and that we got Thank to you. hear the story yeah. as well. Mm. We do a couple of things with every guest before we wrap up. Yeah. The first of which is we ask the guest to give homework. Now, that sounds daunting. Okay. But it's something actionable that the people listening can go away and do that is going to help them pursue progress, that is going to help them achieve what they're trying to achieve. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about your audience and the people that would listen to this um, are probably people that want to start businesses and would be quite in, inspired by other business leaders is the thing I think is... What I said before about if you don't know what you're going to do, it probably is something you've already done or been told you're good at. There'll be that. 
but also you don't need to know everything. There's a certain advantage in being a little bit ignorant or not knowing how things work, that there's greater people that you can call on to ask for advice. Mm. So knowing that, that if you wanted to start a brand that did beauty products or something like that, there's people you can call who will tell you what needs to go in it and things like that. You don't need to test in a laboratory for 50 years and things like that. You can just get started because getting started and getting into it is what matters more than anything. So if there was one actionable from that that they could take away and do? Stop all the work and just ship the product. (sighs) Just get started. Hmm. Stop messing around. Yep. Get it in front of people. Yep. Find out the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. I love that. I love that. And it's so true. It's so true. We're going to end by uh, what we call rolling out the red carpet for you. Um, Obviously, you're a stealth online presence. We usually say, how can people get uh, involved in what Dave Richards is doing and and follow the story? Do you want to see photos of a cat? And the odd painting would be pretty boring. (laughs) <laughs> I'm on Instagram, but even, <laughs> even that app, I'm like, oh, why am I on it? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's just keep your eyes open and you'll mm. see something incredible Dave's done and you'll have no idea. Yeah. yeah. That's how I like it. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's well, thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, thank you both. That's been great. Oh, awesome. We really appreciate it. And once again, we, we say this to everyone, but your most valuable asset is your time and you've given us an hour and a half. So oh, it's been fun. We been are fun. so thankful. I feel like a, a free psychologist lesson. Oh, <laughs> bit of gaslighting in there as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> healthy gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> and that is where we end it. Thank you so Thank much. you both very much. You have been listening to the Progress Podcast. We launch episodes every Friday. And if you want to know more about us and who we are and what we do, you can visit our website, theprogresspod.com. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in on your favorite podcast channels or head to our YouTube to see what we're up to in the studio. We'd also love to hear your feedback. So send your burning questions, your guest suggestions, and your feedback to hello at theprogresspod.com.